director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies here, and I'll be moderating our uh, little discussion after the film. Uh, but I'm excited for, uh, for all of you to see Chevron, Accidental Landmark. Uh, it takes a lot of uh, skill uh, and, and creativity to uh, make a, uh, an interesting and enjoyable and accessible uh, film about administrative law, about the judicial deference doctrines to administrative agencies, as we lawyers talk about it. But uh, um, it really is uh, engaging, and the, uh, you know, the, the 80s uh, Cold War uh, early uh, uh, sci-fi video game theme, meme that you see throughout, I think, adds to uh, the production value. So anyway, Chevron, Accidental Landmark. Preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Now, congratulate you, sir. Chevron was decided in 1984, which was kind of midway into the Reagan administration. The Reagan administration um, came into office with a uh, very strong focus on deregulation of uh, uh, the economy. Reagan comes in, he's got a Democratic Senate, but uh, he wins by a pretty healthy margin. This is one of his four platforms. The incoming Reagan administration reversed some regulations that governed basically the application of uh, air pollution requirements under the Clean Air Act to new plant and equipment being built in, in factories across the country. It was, we thought, a major step backwards in protecting people's health and air quality. And so we went to court. But Chevron starts out as this puny little precedent and then grows to be a major landmark decision. And, and that's quite unusual. It's, it's hard to think of too many parallels to that in jurisprudence. It's absolutely the case that Justice Stevens did not intend for his opinion in the Chevron decision to create a landmark. This debate about Chevron deference isn't academic. It has a real world impact. Chevron deference empowers agencies to act, uh, to play a lawmaking role, uh, and it encourages courts to defer to federal agency actions. And it can have profound effects uh, on our separation of powers, uh, on the role between Congress, courts, and the president and the federal agencies that the president oversees uh, in ways I think the founders would have never imagined. The Chevron Doctrine comes from Chevron USA versus Natural Resources Defense Council, which was a case from the 1984 involving an EPA regulation interpreting the Clean Air Act. I would say that it was intended when decided by Justice Stevens, who was a liberal, uh, to be a discretionary, somewhat loose canon of construction uh, to deal with very close questions of administrative law where the precise uh, understanding of a possibly ambiguous statute uh, could produce two different outcomes. And the notion was the expert agency, which has dealt with the statute uh, for decades maybe, 
deserves a little, a little uh, headway. The court announced in the Chevron opinion what we now refer to as a two-step standard. The two steps of Chevron is first you ask whether the statute's ambiguous. It's applying the ordinary tools of statutory interpretation, the text, the canons, to figure out whether Congress had spoken uh, clearly on the question. If they hadn't, then you move to step two, the idea being that if Congress doesn't speak clearly, they intended for uh, the agency uh, to fill in the holes in the statute, not the court. If the statute is ambiguous, then the court in Chevron said that reviewing courts ought to defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation of that statute, essentially recognizing that sometimes statutes are susceptible of more than one reasonable interpretation, and that choosing between those reasonable interpretations is a matter of policy choice best left to the agency rather than to the courts. If the case is decided at step one, the agency wins about 40% of the time. If you get to step two, if the court finds the statute ambiguous, the agency wins almost 95% of the time. Uh, and so if you're trying to figure out the impact of Chevron, uh, of the deference itself, it is definitely true that once you get to step two, um, the agency is going to almost always win. This is the United States Supreme Court. It is the highest court in the land. In this decade, it will be called upon to make decisions about our environment, which may well change the face of the nation. The growth of the economy in the 50s uh, and the 60s had um, not been accompanied by any uh, significant pollution control laws. The factory pollution, the car pollution was choking the cities and the suburbs where most people lived. The Clean Air Act passed with almost unanimous support and it had very strong advocates in the Republican Party in 70, in 77, and even in 1990. And then we realized that industry, you know, was getting more and more organized in lobbying the Congress and lobbying the administration, and we needed to have a presence in, in the administrative process and to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the agency's people and with the industry's people on technical matters as well as the legal matters. In the Chevron case, the administration just basically wanted to win the case. They, they were interested in adopting the bubble concept. Uh, they thought it gave more flexibility to industry. So all the arguments in the case were really, you know, is the bubble okay or is the bubble not okay? And no one was really talking about standards of review or how courts should review agency decisions in any systematic way. The bubble concept was the phrase used by industry representatives and the Reagan administration to describe how they wanted to interpret the term stationary source as defined in the Clean Air Act. Environmentalists argued that the bubble concept was contrary to the plain meaning of stationary source found in the law. The CAA put strict limitations on emissions from stationary sources of air pollution, such as power plants or smelters, and defined a stationary source as any building, structure, facility, or installation which emits or may emit any air pollutant. A dispute arose from ambiguity over what constituted a source, whether it refers to each pollution-emitting apparatus within a plant or to the whole plant. The bubble concept referred to the whole plant definition, Imagine putting a bubble over an entire plant and only looking at changes in pollution levels coming out a hole in the top. 
This was favorable to industry representatives because it meant that as long as their net pollution was either lower or unchanged when they made modifications to or installed any new apparatus, they would not have to comply with any of the limitations for individual stationary sources. The bubble first comes up uh, in the D.C. Circuit in a case called ASARCO. The EPA, this was the Carter Administration EPA, had been lobbied by uh, various industries, including the smelter industry, of which Sarco was part, to adopt the bubble policy because they wanted some more regulatory flexibility in how the new source provisions would apply uh, to their industry. Along comes the Reagan administration, and they changed the definition of a source in such a way as to exempt 90% of the stuff that used to be subject to these requirements. And we thought that didn't make any sense. Paul Batter was in charge of overseeing the briefing and he did the oral argument for the government uh, in the Chevron case. David Doniger, uh, a seasoned lawyer for the NRDC, argued on the other side. Bator approached the case was very much just to figure out how to win this case. Uh, the government uh, was in favor of the bubble concept and they it was controversial. The NRDC hated the bubble concept. So that was the big focus on the, on the, on the case and the argument. There were seven just, justices in front of me. I went second. Uh, Paul Bator uh, argued the case. And he argued in, in broad generalizations. We think the government's position is basically throwing around the weight of the federal government. There are some aspects of the Chevron opinion which were clearly um, a s sort of stimulated or framed by the Bator brief. Uh, particularly, Bator made this argument in his brief that uh, delegations uh, from Congress to an agency can be both explicit and implicit. The main focus of the Bator brief was really federalism. The argument was that this bubble concept would be, would just give the states flexibility to decide whether or not they wanted to use this approach or not. Uh, as opposed to mandating a, a federal approach one way or the other. And when I got a chance to argue, I went back to the basics. The statute defines a source in these four terms. It's intending to capture the pollution in these three specific ways. When someone builds a new boiler or blast furnace, the effect of the regulation is to exempt 90% of all that activity from these pollution controls, how could Congress have intended to uh, build this elaborate structure of requirements for a source, which are very specific, and then allow the government to uh, redefine the, the, the underlying word to exempt almost all of that equipment from those rules. The statute was kind of convoluted and very unclear, and the legislative history was also convoluted and unclear, and so Doniger had a tough time of arguing that the bubble was unlawful. The administration won the Chevron case unanimously by a vote of six to nothing. When the case finally came to be decided, there were only six justices, uh, which is a bare quorum. Justice White almost never got to assign a majority opinion uh, because he was fourth in seniority. But the very afternoon after the conference, he sent a memo around assigning the case to Justice Stevens to write the majority opinion. This was a very unusual assignment. The notes uh, in the Blackman file uh, indicate that uh, nobody paid much attention to what Justice Stevens had written. But 
Justice White, I think, to again reinforce his decision to assign it to Justice Stevens, responded almost immediately with a strong, I join your opinion, you know, no comments about it. And then, interestingly, uh, the other justices just fell in line very quickly, including Justice Brennan, who'd voted to affirm rather than reverse, and Justice Chief Justice Berger, who'd voted tentatively at least to affirm rather than reverse. And so everybody kind of quickly joined the Stevens opinion. There's no evidence of any significant revisions. So I think, in a way, it was kind of like this case just went under the radar. When I asked about it, he always responded, this was just a restatement of the law, this was nothing new, and he was not trying to change anything in any significant way. But if you just focus on the beginning passage about the two steps and the suggestion that uh, there's a, there are implied delegations to agencies to interpret statutes that sort of gives them this authority uh, greater than the court's authority to interpret an ambiguous statute. And the concluding section where he talks about agencies are responsible to the president, who's answerable to the people through elections and courts don't have any constituency, as he said. Those two sections of the opinion really were quite innovative and I think were, were taken for all they're worth quite transformative. And so those two parts of the opinion are now what appears in the case books and what everybody thinks of as the Chevron doctrine. But it was really at the time, to the justices, it looked like just another case involving an agency issue, uh, highly technical. Some, some scholars call Chevron an accident landmark uh, because it wasn't something the court was anticipating to kind of do a sea change in administrative law. But the way he wrote the opinion was very formulaic, very rules-based. And the lower courts, in particular the D.C. Circuit, ran with that decision and created a much more sweeping principle of, uh, of administrative law than I think Justice Stevens ever would have imagined would come out of that decision. I think the D.C. Circuit loved it because it simplified the way he organized opinions about this. I think the government loved it because it simplified the way he briefed these cases. The Justice Department, of course, once it was given the gift of Chevron, sort of tried to use it for all it was worth. Uh, and that continued through the uh, first Bush administration uh, as well. I can only speak for how we felt in the administration, which was, oh good, they are, they're making it clear they're not going to block Reagan's attempt to roll back certain aspects of the regulatory inheritance so long as he does it right. But then of course, times change, you get the Clinton administration and so forth, and you get, you know, different administrations, and so whoever's in power uh, sort of likes Chevron uh, because it, appears like it's going to do more to uphold their decisions than the old approach would. And who's out of power tends to be more skeptical of Chevron because they think the courts are probably going to be more likely to be where they win than before the agencies. But agencies began to manufacture more and more sort of, um, I'm not sure you'd call them fake ambiguities, but certainly forced ambiguities, which they took advantage of to just dramatically extend their interpretive authority over just untold gobs of, of, of law covering the entire sweep of the uh, American government. It, it's not about the Chevron doctrine. It's about the underlying policies. And in periods of time when Republicans have been in power, especially now, you see uh, very determined wholesale efforts to roll back the law. And this is a neutral principle that we ought to be able to use no matter who's in charge. And the remedy, if Congress doesn't like outcomes, is to change laws, not to turn a blind eye when the 
president and his agency heads just violate them. So the way I see it, there are two different layers to the current debate. One has to do with the ongoing and long-standing debate over how Chevron operates in terms of its two steps, and also under what circumstances Chevron ought to provide the evaluative standard. That's not a new debate. We've been having that debate for a long time. The justices aren't in agreement as to how you evaluate those questions, and we just continue on. The other part of the debate really isn't about Chevron deference at all. Rather, it's about deference to agencies altogether. But the attacks on Chevron started during, during the second term of the Obama administration, like the real strong attack. If I had to guess, part of it was there was a dissatisfaction with how far, how much Chevron had grown. This was not just a Stevens Chevron anymore. It was a much more deferential, rule-based approach where agencies seldom lost. We're comfortable constraining regressive administrations under the Chevron doctrine. I wish that uh, some of the Chevron hawks out there had been as comfortable living with constraining the actions of the Obama administration under the same tests. If Congress does its job, as the founders envisioned under the separation of powers doctrine, then 90% of the problems of Chevron go away because the ambiguities aren't there. And if there's an ambiguity, the courts are supposed to resolve the ambiguity, not the agency, and the courts are not supposed to bow to the agency. The Clean Air Act has saved tens of thousands of lives per year, but through regulations that EPA had to issue. If they didn't have that assignment and they didn't have that leeway from the courts, it wouldn't happen. The skies would be a lot dirtier and tens of thousands of people would be dying every year who were not. Could be you and me. If we decide to get rid of Chevron, just overrule it, what's going to replace Chevron? You know, are we going to go back to this multifactorial thing that uh, seemed to create a lot of judicial uh, discretion that Justice Scalia didn't like, uh, or, or what else would we substitute for Chevron? Uh, that's a very big, big question. Sometimes debates over the nuances of Chevron's two steps, or the scope of Chevron's domain can begin to resemble the debate over how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. It's easy to get lost in the arcana of those debates. We should never lose sight, though, of the overarching rationale behind Chevron, because that ought to be our touchstone in applying Chevron, rather than the arcana of the nuances. <laughs>All right. Um, well, here to talk about what you've just seen. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It catches me every time. Um, here to talk about what you've just seen and uh, broader uh, issues that are raised uh, are David Doniger, who's uh, Senior Strategic Director in the Natural Resources Defense Council, whom you saw on screen. 
David is one of the most accomplished Clean Air Act lawyers uh, in the country. He's been at NRDC since 1978. I think that sets a record for longest at any one employer in the D.C. area. I, I had eight years off for good behavior in the Clinton. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, right. White House Counsel on uh, Environmental Quality in the EPA. Um, uh, David also played a key role in formulating the Montreal Protocol to stop depletion of the ozone layer and the 1990 amendments to the Clean Air Act. And then uh, we'll have Adam White, who's the director of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State, uh, which was founded by newly confirmed Judge Naomi Rao. Uh, Adam's also an assistant professor at uh, George Mason's Antonin Scalia Law School, uh, where he teaches and writes on administrative law and related subjects. And finally, my colleague, Will Yateman, who joined us a couple of months ago, uh, working on administrative law, constitutional structure, and regulatory reform. Before that, he was at the Competitive Enterprise Institute for nine years. And uh, the way that one does in the think tank world, he first gained his expertise in administrative law and the regulatory state, and then went to law school. So he just recently graduated from Georgetown uh, University Law Center. Uh, his degree is apparently upstairs under a pile of papers on his desk. <laughs> So, we'll start with David, since you were actually uh, in the film. What did you think of the presentation, and uh, what do you think of the, the broader lessons from uh, what you argued 30 years ago? Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be in the film and, and also to be here. Uh, I think the, um, uh, it's very incumbent on, on, on observers here to uh, think about the issues here from the point of view, from a neutral point of view in the sense, how do you want things to work when uh, a, a president of either party is in charge? I mean, in other words, we should have an approach which, um, uh, a judicial approach and a, a legal approach, which is, I think, constant. Um, a second thing I would point out is that Congress um, can't legislate in the details. Uh, the modern world is too complicated. It moves too fast. It's probably also the modern world has actually, uh, what's the word, scleroticized the con congressional process, so it moves even slower than it did in its heyday. Um, so if uh, Congress had to make all of these difficult decisions uh, they wouldn't get made. Or, under some uh, approaches, they'd get made in a highly, highly lobbying sensitive and uh, political uh, donation sensitive context uh, where you would have uh, votes on whether to uphold the regulation that are um, heavily influenced by things that border on, on the corrupt, certainly uh, not substantive. So I think we need administrative agencies, and we need them to be tasked to do these kinds of things. The Clean Air Act was structured. Well, actually, here's a quiz. Who do you think was the first president to expressly ask for the authority to control carbon dioxide because of its impact on the climate? Uh, who asked for legislation of that kind, and when? Nixon? Actually, it was Lyndon Johnson in 1965. Uh, as part of a, the message uh, asking for Clean Air Act and clean, clean Air and Water legislation, which in those days it took Congress a mere five years to formulate. So it was enacted under Nixon. 
um, and uh, includes express reference to protecting against climate change, and also general authority to uh, deal with new pollution problems as science identifies them. So it's included two different ways. And uh, I think that's a good arrangement. And I think um, uh, um, in order to make American government work on many different topics, we need to have some leeway, uh, some assignment by Congress to agencies of a job like this and some leeway to perform it. So the last thing I'll say is if you were to replace the formal Chevron doctrine, what would you replace it with? And how would this kind of leeway uh, be afforded or not? Uh, and how would it be supervised? Those are the questions I think we have to address. Thanks for the chance to wax on. Adam? I wish every Think Tank video it was like a Knight Rider like theme song and, and font motif. That was great. I really appreciated the video. Really impressed by the Federal Society for putting it together. Um, I want to say at the outset, I, I see the last few decades of history very differently than, than, than David does, which probably isn't a great surprise. But I think the most important way in which we disagree is the way in which he diagnosed the basic problem. Congress can't legislate on these things. Congress won't legislate on these things. Therefore, it's necessary for Congress to delegate broad powers to agencies, and they can actually take care of the details. Oftentimes, we hear versions of this from presidents of both parties saying, Congress won't act, therefore I will. Um, I think this gets it exactly backwards. I think that in the last half century, as we've made it easier and easier and easier for agencies to act, that in and of itself has made Congress less likely to act. The fact that there's this entire parallel structure of lawmaking through administrative agencies that deals with the pressing issues of our time relieves all hydraulic pressure that might otherwise force Congress to come together and legislate, do the hard work of legislating and making compromises. Um, why, if you're a member of Congress, either the president's party or the opposite party, why would you ever venture a compromise for which you'll probably be primaried if you know that the president and his party can just walk away from the table at any time and try a unilateral course of action? I think the Congress is increasingly gridlocked because it's easier for agencies to act. Um, I think that the, the proof is in the pudding. Ever since this heyday of, of legislation in the 1960s, we've only seen the legislative process break down at the exact moment that agencies have gotten more and more discretion in acting. So that, I think, is the fundamental problem. I don't, I don't see Chevron, and here's where I'll agree with David largely, I don't see Chevron as the cause of most of this problem. I just don't. I think Chevron is a symptom of the statutes that we've passed, and I actually think Scalia got it right in his 1989 Duke Law Journal article, where he said that Chevron is probably the most reasonable and plausible approach for judicial interpretation of regulatory statutes in an era when Congress has written such broad statutes. I still agree with that. I think Chevron has a lot of problems, and I think there's some ways that it ought to be mended. Um, but I think, I think Tom Merrill and, and David ask a good question. If we don't have Chevron, what will replace it? Um, maybe the only thing worse than Chevron is the absence of Chevron. Uh, and a return to the era of the 1970s into the 1980s, when judges like David Bazelon and Skelly Wright micromanaged um, regulatory agencies throughout the 1970s into the 1980s. Um, that's why I'm of the... I've, well, I've, I've often point out Chevron's flaws. I think I'm more in the anti-anti-Chevron camp, um, or mended, don't end it. I think that um, the reforms that Just, Chief Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh and others have suggested, that Chevron needs to be cabined with a very robust step one 
that separates out major questions from run-of-the-mill mundane detail filling, the kind of which David was referring to earlier. Um, I think that's probably a very important step to build out in the Chevron framework. Let Chevron operate in the limited sphere in which it was intended, where it is just filling in little gaps, but make sure that Congress itself is forced to grapple with the big issues. Will. The, uh, again, I might echo the comments about the quality of the film. Um, I enjoyed it very much, and I thought it was, it explains a very difficult topic in an accessible fashion. Um, I disagree with uh, David and Adam regarding um, concern about Chevron, and, and I hope we get to that in, in, in addition to sort of a, how an alternative could work, because I've got some ideas to that end. Uh, keeping on the movie, however, I wanted to emphasize and sort of flesh out what I thought was the neatest thing, what, the, the, what interested me the most, and that was the role of the D.C. Circuit. Um, I had always assumed that it was the government pushing the ball on this, and that, to me, made intuitive sense, um, given the government is the direct beneficiary. This notion brought up in the film and also in the underlying article, the, the film is, is largely based on an article by Thomas, Professor Thomas Merrill, who was in the film. Um, but this role of the D.C. Circuit, and uh, the numbers actually bear it out. Um, in, in the underlying article, Thomas Merrill noted that, that the D.C. Circuit, in the first three years after Chevron, uh, used it or employed the framework in controlling opinions 115 times. That is overwhelmingly, or that is far more, I should say, than the next highest court, which was the Ninth Circuit, uh, 44 times. And, and 44 was double what the third highest was, um, 22. Uh, I, I, as part of an ongoing series I do for a blog known as Notice and Comment, run by the Yale Journal on Regulation, um, I, I, it's on the Ninth Circuit. I, I dug a little deeper into the 44 instances <clears throat> in which the Ninth Circuit used Chevron at its outset, the first three years. And there was a qualitative difference in addition to a quantitative difference with, with how it was employed in the D.C. Circuit. And that is to say, whereas the D.C. Circuit quickly embraced, and this is described in detail in Professor Merrill's article, they quickly embraced the two-step formulation. Uh, the Ninth Circuit, it was only in 30% of the cases that it did so. For the most part in the Ninth Circuit, Chevron stood for, and during these early years, stood for sort of this amorphous principle that, that for agency flexibility. Um, you know, that was a term that was often bandied about in the Chevron context by the Ninth Circuit at this time. So to me, that was really interesting. It was sort of the extent to which... Um, it wasn't this way at the outset, but it, it was sort of constant pressure from the government and indeed this leading role played by the D.C. Circuit that has got us to where we are today. I thought that was really interesting. So what, what do you all think about that? So Will is essentially arguing that it's, uh, it would have remained uh, just another case or uh, you know, so something run-of-the-mill had it not been for the D.C. Circuit, which after all has uh, most of the major cases in this area, both in quantity and uh, significance, um, had it not been for the D.C. Circuit to make it into this accidental landmark. Is that, is that accurate? Well, my, my experience is a little different. I, I, I think it, it landed like a stun grenade in, in the D.C. Circuit. And uh, um, I think instead of tracking uh, how often it's cited, it might be more interesting to track what, re, what the results were. And I think it was the result, at least initially, that the D.C. Circuit got very chary of overruling agencies. That, that they took the message from the Supreme Court 
to be um, more focused on step two. You know, you allow leeway under step two. What you saw in my experience is it took a while to be able to get the DC Circuit to issue step one rulings. Now, this is not a scientific uh, or you know a, a scholarly observation. It's my own practice and my colleagues. Uh, it took a while before we could win. I mean, remember our position in the Chevron case was that we should have won on what would have been step one if it had been, uh, if that had been the, the way the test was articulated at the time. And it took a while before we could get the D.C. Circuit to hold the Reagan administration when they were violating clear statutory obligations. Finally, I don't remember how many years it was, we finally got a, a decision over the phrase total maximum daily Load. Uh, TMD, Load. limits. And, and there was some flexibility in what total meant, some flexibility in what maximum meant, and some flexibility in what limit meant. But the D.C. Circuit finally agreed that daily did not mean yearly. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh. And, and it's extremely important. I, I think it can also mean a tax. Yeah, maybe. But it's really important when Congress puts these laws together, first of all, when they're doing it in the context after Chevron, they're trying as much as they can to write definitions and terms that don't have ambiguity. At least I know that's what, as a lobbyist and working with staff people in the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments, we were trying, the reason that law is so long is that you, you end up having to write so much in detail into the law to try to anticipate and foreclose ambiguity. And yet litigation or regulation and litigation happen after the fact. So the lobbyists for the industry uh, groups would take terms we couldn't have imagined being ambiguous and, uh, uh, and, and develop new ambiguity theories. And we, so we end up having these is this step one, step one, step two? Is this ambiguous or not? This is going on all the time. Um, and at the same time, Congress does delegate uh, complicated, tough issues to agencies. I think one of my favorite post-Chevron cases is Homer City. Uh, it was decided at the D.C. Circuit level by Judge Kavanaugh, and he somehow found a step one clarity against EPA. Went up to the Supreme Court and court ruled six to two with Kennedy and uh, Roberts joining the four uh, liberals saying, no, this is a statute that gave the agency an assignment of, um, uh, in that case it was to curb interstate air pollution, which is a multi-dimensional, multi-directional, multi-source, very complicated problem. Congress gave the agency some parameters to solve that problem and some flexibility as to construct a way of doing it in a way that balanced cost and benefit and um, administrative uh, uh, and interstate equity and administrative, and they upheld it. Um, without that, under the Kavanaugh view, we would still have all this interstate air pollution and the assignment that Congress gave over and over again to EPA to address interstate air pollution would still be unfulfilled. That can't be right. So on the, on the accidental landmark issue, um, 
I've always liked that title. This essay by Merrill is great. It's unfortunate that it's in this collected volume called Administrative Law Stories. Um, I teach administrative law, and even I like hesitate to buy a book called Administrative <laughs> Law Stories. Um, but if you can find a copy online, um, this essay is really great. Every time I hear that title, I think it's been retitled "The Little Guy Against the Government," or something like that. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> the um, the I always think of the line from Shakespeare: "Some men are born great, some achieve greatness, some have greatness thrust upon them." And Chevron is definitely in the third category. Um, it's this. It was the small, seemingly as the video showed, seemingly. Uh, uncontroversial or insignificant. Well, at the voted conference was 3-3. It was 3-3. Yeah. Right, but, but as we said at the end, no. the justices just sort of breezed through. Right. Um, just a point of curiosity, the other justices were recused because they had Chevron stock or something? Um, uh, Marshall was sick. Uh, um, Re uh, Rehnquist got up and left. It was the fourth argument of the day, and he just got up and left at the beginning. And he didn't participate by reading the transcript later? I mean, Well, I'm thinking, wow, what a gift. Rehnquist is getting up and leaving. <laughs> and um, uh, O'Connor participated and was very skeptical of the government's argument. Um, and then recused herself afterwards because she got a bequest of stock. And it wasn't just Chevron. Almost every major, you know, uh, energy-intensive polluting company was in, in, involved in that case. Here's a pro tip for you. If you ever become a D.C. Circuit judge, immediately buy energy stock so you don't have to sit through the boring FERC cases. <laughs> um, okay, but on this point about the accidental landmark, I just want to say, I think it's important to keep in mind the moment in history that Chevron comes up. It's not just in the context of the Reagan administration and regulatory reform, but also the fact that Chevron just barely predates this modern rise of debates over originalism and the, how to look for statutory meaning. Right, so you have Chevron coming in an era before Scalia is on the court, before Thomas is on the court. There's sort of proto-originalism floating around, and the Federal Society is, is still a baby at the time. Um, but you have Chevron coming up at the moment you have this big split among judges, especially the split left versus right, on how to find statutory clarity, whether you can find clarity at all. And this is a point Scalia gets into in his 89 Duke Law Journal article, which you definitely should read, where he says as a textualist, he's gonna decide a lot more cases at step one, he suspects, than other judges will. He'll find a lot more clarity when others don't. Um, sort of ironically, in the more recent eras, we've had this renewed debate about Chevron, especially among conservatives. Um, it happens at the same moment that we have this new debate among uh, the conservatives and libertarians. That's generally, um, I mean, it's not quite that simple, but over, over judicial restraint versus judicial engagement, right? And to what extent should the judges decide what the statute means, even when the statute is, is unclear? And to what extent should we lean back and defer more to legislatures when interpreting the Constitution, deferring to... Um, to defer to agencies when interpreting the statutes. The fact that we're now questioning Chevron deference within the sort of the conservative libertarian family at this exact moment isn't a coincidence. I see this sort of latest round of debates as being just sort of an echo or a reflection of the broader debate happening among conservatives and libertarians over the role of judges. That raises uh, this issue of odd bedfellows or shifting coalitions because, of course, as you all saw, uh, this was a case about environmental groups versus Ronald Reagan's deregulatory agenda and you know those terrible unelected judges getting in the way of the agencies. And so Chevron was a conservative decision, judicial deference 
to agencies is a conservative or market-oriented or whatever you want to describe kind of ruling. And now, you know, the, the shoe is on the other foot, Mr. Bond, right? Uh, the, uh, you saw this, this odd scene during the Gorsuch confirmation hearings where uh, Senator Feinstein, Senator Durbin would attack now Justice Gorsuch for his questioning of deference. In effect, saying that they want Rick Perry or Scott Pruitt or Betsy DeVos to have more power, the agencies to have more power. So, you know, is this properly a, does it have any political salience at all or is it just kind of a, a hot potato and, and you know, how, how do we avoid these political fights? Well, I mean, I feel it is so important to the functioning of the government to have this leeway. We can talk more about that that I said in the film, and I, and I repeat it here, uh, just because President Trump is in power and probably will, I mean, they, imagine what, where we would be if they knew what they were doing. We're still, <laughs> in the third year, and the rollbacks, the major rollbacks still have not even been issued. So we don't have the court confrontations about the rollback of the clean car standards, the clean power plant, or the uh, clean water rule uh, uh, in play yet. That's all for the second and third and fourth terms. <laughs> uh, people ask me, what are my plans for the second term? And it, it's, a, I, it's a nightmarish question. But uh, 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 so anyway, we don't know to what extent the outlandish interpretations of the Clean Air Act, from my point of view, and the Clean Water Act will be defended on the basis that the law is unclear uh, and, and we, the Trump administration, deserve Chevron deference. We don't know whether or they're going to do that or they're going to intone that their new readings are, quote, the best reading and appeal to uh, um, that strain of... Uh, of, uh, of uh, you know. I'd love to see that Trump tweet. My reading of the Clean Air Act is the best reading. <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, we saw... If, uh, Boy, only the best readings. <laughs> um, on, on the question of what the Justice Department will do in this administration if Chevron, as these big fights come up, we saw sort of a flavor of it in the Kaiser versus Wilkie case. This is about the related doctrine of Seminole Rock deference. The Justice Department filed a brief basically calling on the court to trim back our deference, Seminole Rock deference, while not getting rid of it altogether. Um, and I'd expect the, that's the approach the Justice Department will take on Chevron, if, they just, if they're ever forced to, will be to cabinet in some ways, but still leave enough of the doctrine in place to support the policy. I'll say the really, the really interesting Chevron cases, ironically, um, were averted precisely because President Trump won. Um, the Clean Power Plan case and the net neutrality case, um, both of those, I think, would have been the big follow-ups to King v. Burwell in terms of figuring out what the Chief Justice and the majority of the court in King v. Burwell, which was the liberal justices um, with the chief and with, with Kennedy, um, on the major questions exception to Chevron deference. I'm sure the clean power plan and net neutrality rules, they would have been argued in those, in those terms. Of course, I was filing briefs on those issues at the time, so I'm no neutral observer on these things. Um, in terms of the political, we get back to Ilya's question about, about the politics of this, I do think the real um, ideological split, um, and again, this is sort of within the conservative family, the libertarian family, is... Um, it is that it's in a way a political split between people who are comfortable with, with, with politics um, and those who are, are, are more comfortable with the courts. Um, I think Chevron's saving grace is the fact that it, it says in an era in which statutes delegate vast powers to 
the agencies, for better and for worse. Policy judgments ought to be made, first and foremost, by policymakers and not by judges, judges who aren't accountable. And I'm very, very wary of returning to a realm, uh, an era in which um, judges are going to fix contested statutory meanings um, on extremely consequential policy issues. Even in a moment when President Trump is filling the judiciary with the judges of my dreams, um, history is long and sometimes judicial um, tidal waves are short-lived. And I'd say in the long run, I'd rather throw my, you know, throw my, my support behind politics on these issues. I feel confident that, that my, I feel much more confident that my views will prevail in the political realm in the long run than they will in, uh, necessarily in the judicial realm. So Adam prefers the uh, first 2,000 names in the uh, Burke, Virginia phone book uh, to uh, the faculty of uh, whatever. Uh, I'll take the faculty of the Scalia Law School. If okay, that's the choice. Okay, okay. Uh, Will, Will, what about you? Uh, well, I, I would like to um, perhaps resolve in your mind, uh, the conser- or at least in my mind, how I've resolved this conservative libertarian debate over Chevron about which Adam speaks. And I think it's not just conservative libertarian. I mean, I think this gets to the heart of um, the controversy over Chevron writ large. And that is, uh, when is it appropriate, or let me put it this way, but first, uh, first principles. Um, whenever you interpret a text with a force and effect of law, you engage in some sort of act of policymaking to, to some degree. I mean, it, it's inherent to the act. So given that reality, in what circumstances are judges, are they the appropriate decision maker? And in what circumstances are the policymaker the appropriate decision maker? Um, Chevron's blanket rule, with perhaps notwithstanding Chevron step zero, makes no effort to, to, um, to answer these questions, to, to, to divvy up these, these two domains, if you will. So uh, I'd like to, it's, an, it's a really old idea. It's something that was put forth by Kenneth Colt Davis, who's known as the godfather of administrative law. He was a key architect of the, AP, of the Administrative Procedure Act. He advocated this for decades. To my eyes, there's plenty of regulatory regimes. There's plenty of statutory provisions where there are ready tells that this is the proper province of the judiciary. Um, this is the proper province uh, of uh, the, the judicial power. Um, and some examples. I'll note here that, uh, that there has been some academic work on this. Um, in addition to Casey Davis's. I'm, I'm not necessarily breaking new ground here, but just to throw out some ideas. Uh, when, when, uh, am, when ambiguity isn't a function of the, the four corners of a statutory provision, that is to say when ambiguity is a function of tension within a statute or across statutes, canons of interpretation have developed within the judiciary over hundreds of years to deal with that situation. So to me, that, that clearly the court is expert. A number of regulatory regimes, um, antitrust, um, uh, uh, in effect, uh, SEC, CFTC, um, and FERC, market manipulation, which are basically fraud regimes. A number of, of regulatory regimes are based on common law principles. Um, well, again, that, that is squarely within the wheelhouse of judges. Um, uh, other examples of, um, I've, I've, well, I will not uh, pause and, and have my, my mind fail me, but the point is there's a ton of examples such as that out there. I've listed, I've got a big list, and I think if you put real thought into it, um, you can divvy up certain responsibilities where it does make sense that judges are more expert and certain responsibilities where clearly this is meant for the policymaker, where the judge's role should, should merely be to, to test the reasonableness of, of the government's decision. So, David? So I want to make two observations, one about uh, King v. Burwell so-called step zero. 
I've read that case, you know, over and over, in Robert's opinion. I can't figure out. Th this is about the interpretation of the uh, provision Act. of subsidies under the Affordable Care Act. The text said uh, exchanges established by the state. The court interpreted that to include the uh, exchanges established by the federal government. Right. I can't figure out for the life of me the difference between a so-called step zero decision made by the judges without reference to Chevron and a step one decision. Uh, he would have done step one exactly the same way. You look at the text, the text itself is inconclusive, but the message from Chevron is text structure uh, with all the traditional tools, including canons and so on. And when you, when you analyze, when you go through his opinion, it's a step one decision that the, that the, that the statute has only one possible meaning, which is in that case, that the, um, the term had to include the federal uh, uh, exchanges which fill in for uh, in the default of a state exchange. I won't try to convince you of that, but go back and read it. Try to tell me the difference between a so-called step zero decision made before Chevron and a Chevron step one decision. That's point one. Point two, in the net neutrality dissent that uh, um, you were referring to, I think, from Judge Kavanaugh, yeah. he propounds a really, to me, revolutionary and dangerous doctrine uh, where Judge Justice Roberts said, it, you know, there are some cases that fall outside of uh, 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 Chevron, and we the judges are going to decide what the law means. Judge Kavanaugh says there's some cases, on the, and he called those major questions. And, and Judge Kavanaugh says there are major questions, and he distinguishes between, let's, from my shorthand, minor questions, where ambiguities can be resolved under the Chevron doctrine. But if it's a major question and it's ambiguous, there's been no effective legislation at all. There's a failure to legislate. Because he says you can't delegate through ambiguous terms if, there's a, if the question is major. Well, that is a huge return backwards to non-delegation -delega non -delegation doctrine. And in my mind, it would uh, paralyze the uh, the, even going forward, it would paralyze Congress from effectively managing the modern economy. Even if you want to write new laws, you just couldn't be that specific. But it would also wipe out 50 or 80 years of statutes which were adopted under a different premise. Sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> well, so, so on that point, I mean, every time we say Congress can't do this, can't do that, it reminds me of George W. Bush when he talked about um, soft bigotry of low expectations, right? Congress doesn't do things because we don't really challenge Congress to do these things. I think one of the real benefits of Chevron step zero saying, and I'll get back, I do have a, an answer to your question about King, what's the difference? Um, I'll get to in a second. But I think the more that we tell Congress it's okay for you to delegate to agencies discretion to fill in the details. And I thought that was, Chev the whole defense of Chevron is always, well, you know, there's details that need to be filled in, technical, you know, technical things that can't be solved by Congress. Fine, let, let, let the agencies fill in the little details, right? But on the big questions, we ought to leave it to Congress to fix the rules. And if Congress decides that on the biggest questions, they're going to just write in broad terms, that's what I like about King v. Burwell. The court says, okay, fine, then we'll interpret what the law means. And that's, the, that's one of quick, two... Quick response. Yeah. The assumption was that the Clean Power Plan was one of those big cases. Yeah. It turns out that without the Clean Power Plan, the power sector is doing what the Clean Power Plan would have required. In other words, the Clean Power Plan 
to my mind, yeah. undershot the mark, didn't control enough, would have had virtually no economic impact. So why is it a big question? Well, why did you work so hard to get it enacted then if it was all superfluous? Because we thought uh, that, we didn't think it would be superfluous, but I'm telling you it turned out to be virtually superfluous because of the changing price of renewables and natural gas and so on. There's a lot of reasons, but you cannot make, the, cannot, shouldn't have these categories which depend on a judge's or the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs classification of what the cost analysis is associated with a bill, with a, with a reg, which in that case was dramatically wrong and in many, many, many cases is dramatically wrong. All right, well, let me just say really quick. Chevron already depends on categories made by judges, ambiguous versus unambiguous. That's a very hard line to draw objectively. That's why I kind of like Kavanaugh and Roberts moving towards more of a quantitative metric. The upshot of things like King v. Burwell, it's not in how you interpret the statute, but it's the fact that once the court interprets the statute on its own without applying Chevron deference, um, you know, first of all, Congress is on notice that agencies aren't going to have flexibility. That would and be also, true if it was a step one determination. Yeah, so. but I think that with, with the court even just saying from the outset, we're not going to venture into Chevron land, I think it fundamentally changes the mindset of the judge as they go about their work. All right. One more uh, lightning round of questions before we turn to audience Q&A and very sh short uh, response yeah. to yeah. what you think, whether you think the Supreme Court uh, is going to, uh, forget overturn, but... Uh, cabin, re uh, restrict, uh, decrease Chevron in some way, and briefly how, whether that's by the major question doctrine, whether that's by only deferring when it's an area of the agency's expertise, like biology but not legal interpretation, whether it's working harder not to find ambiguity so much. So, you know, yes or no, and if you think it will restrict, briefly, which, how it's going to do that. Well, I guess I see two risks and I'm really thinking about Kavanaugh. One is this uh, uh, classification. This is the lightning round. Yes, <laughs> it's the lightning round, uh, which leads to, uh, 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 you know, declaring a whole set of major questions, basically uh, throwing out the laws in question. That's one risk. The other is that he tends to find um, um, a, a spurious clarity, or, uh, and I think what he's doing is rewriting statutes uh, under the cloak of saying this is what a this is limitation of what a word means. But, but you're saying that that will carry the day. One of those two. No, views? no. And I, but I also last lightning point. I don't think that he that his opinions command the um, the five. Who's the he? Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh. Okay. So, but ultimately, what will the court do as well? Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. I, okay. So, so I'll, answer, I'll, I'll answer yes. I think. I, um, I think the arc, of, the arc of history bends towards justice. And in the end, I think that there's a natural coalition within the court involving Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, Breyer, and Kagan, and maybe Alito, towards some sort of step zero limitation. I think that you'll have Gorsuch and Thomas continue Meaning to- Meaning major question? Yeah, major questions. I'm sorry. Um, my, my lightning isn't as sharp as it used to be. Um, Thomas and Gorsuch, I think, will continue to pull from the right, and you'll see Sotomayor and Ginsburg pull from the left. Well. I'm going to give the provocative answer that it already has changed things. And very briefly, an example uh, decided, or an opinion came down on March 4th, BNSF uh, v. Luce, um, rail, BNSF Railroad. Long story short, uh, the petitioner, uh, the railroad, their argument was buttressed by an IRS interpretation that the agency had had for, statutory interpretation that the agency had held for 80 years. 
You would imagine that this would be at the forefront of the petitioner's argument. It was tucked way back at the end of the brief, and during oral arguments, it was only with avowed trepidation yeah. that counsel brought up Chevron deference. And this was noted by Gorsuch in a dissent in which he said how extraordinary this is. This is, you know, we've been, uh, what's going on here that all of a sudden Chevron is, is, is tucked away in a corner as opposed to something that you lead with. So I'd say the, the political composition of the court whereby four justices are sort of the right of Alito on Chevron has already engendered ramifications in SCOTUS jurisprudence. That is outside the box. All right, uh, please wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone so everyone can hear your question and announce your name and any affiliation. Any questions? Back there. Do we have a microphone? Who's providing the microphone? I'll rephrase the question. The question is, what is Congress's role in remedying uh, whatever is going on in this area? Well, um, I'll tell you what I think it was not. One of the stupidest bills that, um, uh, that we saw in the uh, previous uh, Congress, two Congresses back, was this recurrent bill to just overrule Chevron and, and require de novo decision making. Nobody quite would know what the heck that meant. Uh, and as soon as Trump was elected, uh, I don't think that bill has even been introduced, let alone has any mileage. Um, Congress's role, as I said before, is to try to anticipate um, uh, the creative uh, minds of Washington lawyers and write these statutes as um, carefully and non, you know, explicitly as they can. So sometimes they... Um, they uh, get at loggerheads, and so they just agree on some fuzzword term uh, that is a delegation. But you'd be surprised to how often they're trying to uh, to write uh, what you might call the you know the IRS code approach to legislation. I, I, so I think the right the right role for Congress one is just to write tighter statutes, as David said. Second, I do think there's something to be said for the Reins Act and the Separation of Powers Restoration Act, which I thought was introduced from House Judiciary, but I could be wrong. Third, I think, and this is last, that when it comes to rethinking administrative law, I think Chevron ought to be used as a means, not an end. I think Congress ought to, in reforming the APA, calibrate Chevron deference to reflect the procedural vehicle. What I mean by that is give Chevron deference for things like formal rulemaking, but withhold Chevron deference, prohibit it for other less formal vehicles. That'll create more of an incentive for agencies to go through things like formal rulemaking if they know they're going to have more relaxed judicial deference at the back end of things. I think we ought to use Chevron as a means to higher ends. Is that what we have already with the Christensen-Mead glosses on Chevron? Oh, no, what I'm saying is I think Congress ought to impose more formal rulemaking requirements, and I think they ought to use Chevron, the promise of Chevron deference, as the carrot to pull those agencies through hoops that they might otherwise try to avoid through guidance documents or agency adjudication, things like that. Use Chevron as a means say, to higher ends. When you say formal rulemaking, yeah. that's... It's something beyond informal rulemaking? Yeah, more than, more than notice and comment. Yeah, I mean, like white tie, fancy, fancy rulemaking. <laughs> Will, anything uh, else? I echo uh, my Dave and Adam's comments right. regarding the need for statutory clarity. Um, I would just throw in there that this is a judge-made doctrine. Ultimately, they made the bed, or, or they disrupted the bed, or messed the bed. They've got to make it. The Supreme Court does. Um, Congress, however, it, for a long time, uh, oversight has been not just a neglected duty, but a... a, a 
wholesale abdication. So Congress has to get back into the game of competing with the president um, for management control of the administrative state. I don't think necessarily legislating a, sh a Chevron response is the way to go. I would prefer to see them actually engage in oversight. It's fascinating that the main, one of the main Senate sponsor of that bill is Senator Lee, whose father, Rex Lee, was the Solicitor General during the Chevron case. It's also fascinating that uh, Justice Gorsuch is the right. son of the, def of the respondent who lost the case in the lower court. And, and his and mother was, was the EPA administrator. And was out uh, by the time they won the case. Uh, who says kids aren't learning these things? Yeah. yeah. Thanks very much. My name is Michael Smits from the Washington Free Beacon. Um, I have two questions, but I'm pre-law school, so I don't know if either of them are interesting or just my own confusion, so feel free to poach Pre-law school? So it's not too late to turn back then. <laughs> That's right. Um, the first is if there's a meaningful distinction in the conversation between um, ambiguity and flexibility um, in terms of the language of, of a statute. Um, and the second question is with regards to the relationship between the executive branch and the relevant federal agency and um, the legislature. Um, when it's a, a instruction from the legislature telling the executive agency to do something and the agency is resistant to doing it and the reverse in which it's, it's that the agency is trying to do something that may be beyond the scope of, of the assignment handed to it and whether the distinction there might motivate Republicans or Democrats to treat the issue differently or, or whether the, the law sort of treats it the same. Who wants to take that? Well, let me take the second part. I mean, the, a lot of the debate about co uh, controlling greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act um, is framed by uh, uh, one side saying Congress expressly um, provided for this in 1970 after, as I said, after Johnson asked for it. And, and of course, I think that's the correct answer. And the other side says, this was never in the Clean Air Act. This is just made up and, and extended beyond the mandate. Well, the right, the answer turns on which of those things is factually accurate. And to my mind, anyway, the Supreme Court got it right in the 2007 case, Massachusetts versus EPA. They traced it back uh, to, to, to the origins correctly. Um, I'd let other, somebody else take a crack at, at your other question, which I think is a, a, a very interesting question. Yeah, it's a challenging question, but it ties in a bit to, I think, David's answer. What is ambiguity, right? Just in the words you saw on the video, it's subtle, but it came up in the ways that the, the, the speakers on the video yeah. described the Chevron test, and it's there in the opinion. We throw around words like unambiguous versus ambiguous. Those aren't really the words, the exclusive words the court used in Chevron. They said things like, did Congress have a precise intention on the matter? Did Congress speak directly to the matter? There's a bunch of different ways that they phrase this test. And it's not always clear, are you looking just at the words on the page? Or are you thinking about Congress's intention? Because... I mean, David is talking about what the Clean Air Act says. I don't think there was a single member of Congress in 1990 who said this is going to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, did Actually, they? Actually, there were. There were? There 60, were and there were some who said it wouldn't. No. Yeah, they uh, said, it, they, well, they said it wouldn't regulate, it wouldn't touch on small businesses, homes, churches, those sorts of things. And so the question is, what does Congress cows? intend? What's that? Cows. Oh, um, <laughs> um, and so it's a question about what do we mean by ambiguity? Do we mean Congress <laughs> meant for agencies to have flexibility? 
Did Congress mean for the statute to be left to the agency? Did Congress just not make up its mind? Are we searching for intentions? Or are we just looking at the possible words, the word of the meanings of the word on the page? That's one of the reasons why Chevron became such a more complicated doctrine after the fact, because all of these cases, like City of Arlington and Mead and, and King v. Burwell, um, they're all grappling with what exactly the task of Chevron step one is. And what are we thinking about when we're looking for meaning in the, in the statute? And Kavanaugh said in a Harvard Law Review article, that's maybe the worst part about Chevron, is trying to have a dividing line between unambiguous and ambiguous, which is a very hard line for judges to, to draw. Right there, second row. It's 505. Do you got a guy? Hi. Yeah, pretty soon. Travis Cushman with American Farm Bureau and former scribe to Ilya. Uh, for the two gentlemen in the middle, I was wondering if your defense of Chevron would extend to our and Seminole Rock deference where the agency is also in charge of, of creating the regulation they're also interpreting. And for Will, I was wondering if you could clarify, is your position on Chevron that judges should basically do a better job of making sure there is no ambiguity and using other uh, tools of construction to, to find an answer before going into Chevron? Well, I'll just say quickly that um, uh, we're not um, uh, troubled by uh, cutting back so much on uh, our deference or, or Seminole. Uh, we've seen too many times that the agency interprets a regulation in a way that it never, that we, at least from our lights, it never intended it to go that far or to be cut back that narrow. And if the agency had the power to establish the rule by rulemaking, why shouldn't it go through the process of changing the rule by rulemaking instead of by uh, administrative interpretation. So that one's easier. It's harder when, uh, you know, Congress told them to do something, they're doing their best to figure it out or stay within uh, the uh, executive branches trying to use the, um, the, uh, the law within the, the lanes of the law, and it's not up to them to change it. Um, I think you need the administrative leeway knowing that Congress, if, if you know, when when the uh, Fair Pay Act, whatever it was called, uh, the, 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 what led to the Lilly Ledbetter Act, this interpretation that the, that the, uh, the uh, women couldn't have uh, equal pay lawsuits uh, unless, uh, if they waited too long to file them, and of course the problem was they, they didn't learn uh, when the discrepancy was until much later than the discrepancy began. Anyway, Congress fixed the law. That would be the ideal thing. Yeah, I, so I, I basically agree with that. I think getting rid of our deference is probably a good idea for the reasons that Scalia, has been sketch, that Scalia was sketching out almost a decade ago. It's worrisome to have the same body of, of government writing a law, interpreting a law, and enforcing the law. Um, but I'd say, if nothing else, getting rid of our deference would create the right incentives. It would create the incentive for agencies to be much more precise when they write the rule in the first place. Some people say agencies are strategically vague. They'll leave the regulation open so that they can interpret it more generously later. Maybe that's true. I'm more worried about the fact that agencies are just generally lazier than they should be, and we should make agencies look around corners and think harder about what they want their regulation to mean when they write it in the first place. And any kind of incentive you can create to push in that direction is, is probably a good thing. Will, do you, in addition to answering the question on uh, what you mean on, on Chevron, and you can flesh out Cato's view on, on our, since you wrote the Kaiser brief, uh, he showed up at work his first week. I'm like, go write our Kaiser brief. It's just this little case. You should, uh, he's never written a brief in his life other than in law school, and there you go. I think he did a nice job with it, by the way. 
way. Uh, but also, do you agree with Adam that we should make agencies great again? <laughs> Uh, the, with respect to the make agencies great again, yes, I, I do agree with what Adam just said. With uh, respect to your, your question, I was speaking in the, uh, in the context of uh, deference. I mean, rarely should the judge usurp the agency altogether when it comes to ambiguous text. I would make an exception perhaps for statutory procedural provisions where agencies, in essence, uh, only... Agencies have an incentive to... Uh, to interpret them in a fashion that renders their administrative burden less in order so they can engender more, more or create more policy. So that was a long, circuitous, terrible way of saying um, rarely, rarely, rarely should they outright usurp the role of the policymaker as opposed to remanding it and you know, getting another interpretation before them. I would render an exception for statutory procedural provisions just because agencies have this incentive to give themselves less burdens so they can make more policy. Just one, one other thing. The one thing that gives me pause about getting rid of our deference, and I think critics of Chevron and our, one thing we really ought to read is Federalist 37, right? There's Federalist 37 where Madison's talking about the vague language of the Constitution. He has a great meditation on the nature of written law and the fact that, as he says, all laws are more or less to some extent vague until their meaning can be ascertained and liquidated through a series of adjudications and discussions. He understood that all laws, because we conceive of, we conceive of concepts uh, imperfectly, we write them down, we translate them into writings imperfectly, and then when we read them, we interpret them imperfectly. There's always going to be some vagueness inherent in it, and the courts and agencies and Congress will always have to grapple with this. And so my own sort of argument back against myself whenever I come against uh, a deference doctrine is, yeah, but what about Federalist 37? And with that, uh, we're going to cut it off. Adam actually has to go teach. Are you teaching administrative law? Yeah, tonight is the first uh, night of the judicial review section of my administrative law course. Good, yeah. good. That's the most important section. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, uh, before we thank our speakers, I'll uh, just let you know that we now have a reception where you can talk to all the speakers, except Adam, at least, who has to go off. Uh, and also we have the director of the film, uh, Daniel Richards from the Federal Society is here. You can ask him questions. Uh, if you're looking for restrooms, they're right by the uh, elevators. You can go down there. Uh, and with that, let's give a warm round of applause for our discussion. Thank you. Thank you. That was a lot of fun.